When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything we love about the beautiful game. I'm Ian McGarry, and with me as always is Duncan Castles. And today we're going to be discussing the latest moves in the transfer market before, of course, it opens. And we're still waiting for confirmation on when that will be. And we'll also be discussing the latest developments with regards to project restart and uh, what's going on elsewhere in the EFL. News to bring you, Duncan, from uh, our sources in Germany, and that is that Timo Werner, a player who we have discussed many times on the pod, um, turned down Bayern Munich, much to the chagrin, of course, of their president, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. Uh, We understand that a bid of €30 million, plus add-ons of up to €10 to €15 million, was made to RB Leipzig uh, for the striker-stroke-attacking midfielder um, in the last seven days. The response of Werner, according to those close to him, was that he did not want to go to Bayern because he felt two things were wrong with that potential move for him. One was his development as a player because of uh, Bayern's obvious um, dominance of German football and the notion that obviously Leroy Zani as well, another player we've discussed many times on the podcast as a target for Bayern Munich, uh, could go there. Werner, remember, can play all across the front three, not just as a point striker, but on the left and the right coming in to score goals. The other, and probably more interesting one, Duncan, was he said that he believes that history tells us that players lose their individuality and personality when they go to Bayern because it is such a major institution in German football and society, and he thinks it would be better for his career development. Now, we have said on the pod, um, I think about six months ago, that an agreement had been reached on personal terms for Werner uh, with Liverpool. That remains the case uh, from our information. Uh, At the moment, however, uh, Werner has a 60 million euro release clause. That's around 54 million pounds. Um, Of course, in the renewed and obviously devalued financial climate in football, uh, obviously, Bayern's offer did not reflect 60 million euros, although Leipzig were entertaining the bid on the basis that realistically they don't expect to be able to keep the player this summer. And indeed, in selling their prized asset, they will manage to stay financially solvent and keep their heads above water in the current difficulties. Werner himself prefers to move to the Premier League and we believe, wants to play at Liverpool. 
Duncan, this doesn't really seem to be a surprise, although I suppose um, with the Zani factor as well, um, apparently it's every German player's dream to play for, for Bayern Munich, but not for this particular one. Well, we've seen Timo Werner um, talk publicly about his interest in playing the Premier League and talk publicly about um, his appreciation for Jurgen Klopp. Um, I don't think it's any secret that Liverpool have been trying to uh, convince the player that it's the right place to come to. And uh, what I think what all of this shows you is that they, they've done an effective job there and they have convinced Werner that um, Liverpool is the next uh, correct stage for his career to the extent where um, he's turning down approaches from Bayern Munich. I think you also have to factor in that there was a lot of um, expectation that Bayern might and indeed were going to move for Werner last summer and um, Bayern had been doing the similar kind of preparation that Liverpool are doing now with the player to to set that deal up um, and entice them. And then ultimately they didn't go through with it. So I think there's some there's a degree of bad blood between the camps in that Werner felt let down by Bayern Munich and and the shifting their attention to other areas and of course the the you know the very public pursuit of Leroy Zani, a story we broke first on the on the podcast months before, which ultimately failed because they couldn't come to an agreement on on fee with that player and and an individual they are continuing to pursue in Leroy Zani. So Liverpool have it set up for them to to do this deal. Um as we've explained in the podcast before, part of the reason they want Timo Werner in is they see him as a player who can do the kind of job that Mohamed Salah, um, Mane and Firmino do for them. He's capable of playing in all of those positions. He has the intensity um, and the, the skills in terms of chasing down defenders, pressing high that Liverpool expect to have in their attack. So th- this is a club that does extensive homework on the recruits. They've probably had a better hit rate over the last three or four seasons than any other club in English football, if not European football. Um, they see Werner as fitting the jigsaw should one of their pieces be removed. And again, as we've talked about in the podcast, there is an expectation that eventually Sadio Mane or Mo Salah will say to the club, I want to go and play in Spain. Um, Barcelona and Real Madrid are interested in taking me. I have a big offer. Allow me to leave. And and again, I think it's a testimony to the way Liverpool work from a recruitment perspective, that they've now started to factor those um, processes into their long-term plan in that they go and they talk to the players uh, and their representatives and say, are you happy at the club? Do you want to continue at the club? Are there um, avenues that you will seek to explore in the coming summer or coming summers. Because if there are, let's talk about them. Let's see if that's the best for you. And if you feel it is the best for you, we'll set up a plan in which uh, we can come to a mutually satisfactory agreement where you leave the club, we get a big transfer fee. And the benefit of doing this is we prepare ourselves um, for that exit and get um, replacement players set up to come in before it happens. So we as a club always end up 
in a good position and youth players end up in good positions too. So I think the complication here is you cannot, it's very hard to see um, Manny or Salah or even Firmino, Firmino possibly more open, but particularly Salah and Manny moving in this summer because the suitors, the clubs they want to go to, Real Madrid and Barcelona, are almost certainly not going to be able to put down the kind of transfer fee that would be required to satisfy Liverpool into selling those players. So I think there you get a degree of hesitation on Liverpool's part and do with the COVID crisis, with the costs that will inflict upon the club, with the open question as to when we start playing football again, when Champions League football starts again, what are our revenues going to be for next season? Does it make sense to buy Werner in this summer and add him to the wage bill if we cannot shift out or if we're not going to shift out Mane, Salah or Firmino. Um, and therefore, the, the logical process would be to go to Leipzig and say, well, we know the release clause is 60 million now. Um, our in information is the release clause will reduce next summer. Therefore, we will give you a price between those, those two figures now if you want to get money in but we're not going to pay the full release clause because we don't think you're going to get that from anywhere else this summer. And we believe that the player wants to come to us. So we don't think he's going to go and join another club. So here's your choice. If you want the cash now, we give you less than the release clause or you can wait till next summer and we know we can pick him up then anyway. I think the phrase commonly used here, Duncan, is a grown-up conversation, which doesn't happen that often in football or certainly hasn't been for the last 10 years in terms of the financial uh, inflation um, Liverpool are very realistic Bayern Munich are being very dissatisfied uh, with Werner's response to their interest um, I think Werner has had his heart set on a move to the Premier League and indeed Liverpool specifically for some time as you said and we remind you, we have reported this for the last probably 12 months. Um, and it's up to Leipzig now to accept the new financial reality in football economics and take the hit on the 60 million release clause for a player who wants to leave. And the fact with Werner is he's, he's young and still able to and open to learning and being coached. And um, we know that Klopp loves to coach players who are malleable in terms of their um, openness and ability to um, learn rather than come with um, dogmatic ideas about how football should be played, etc., etc. Um, I think along with the centre-back, I think he would be a brilliant addition to Liverpool's already impressive squad, uh, especially if they could negotiate a deal which was underneath the um, current uh, rescission clause in his contract. Um, even if he had to spend a year, Duncan, or a season, I should say, um, playing one, one in every two games, what we know for a fact is that Liverpool, uh, this season in their brilliance, and also last season for the most part as well, were extremely fortunate in not having injuries or suspensions to major players. And that especially the trident of the front three are almost ever-present. However, you can't expect that to last indefinitely. And 
bringing Werner gives you the flexibility across all three positions, not just to rest, but also to adapt tactically to maybe a, a different player, a different style of uh, attacking as well. And something which I think Liverpool fans themselves, never mind the club, would certainly appreciate. Yeah, and I think with most players coming into Liverpool, you require a period of adaptation anyway, because the, the tactical system is complicated, because the fitness levels demanded are very high. We've seen players like Fabinho, um, who is an excellent holding midfielder and has absolutely proven his worth across his two seasons at Liverpool, um, be perceived as having struggled in, in his first six months at the club. And there was even a period in which Paris Saint-Germain tried to sign Fabinho because they, they were reading signals from the outside that Klopp wasn't happy with him and perhaps a player wouldn't be happy that he wasn't, hadn't gone straight into the team. And, and that was rejected outright by Liverpool and by Klopp because they knew the player would come good for his system once he had had uh, the chance to learn it properly. Same also with Andrew Robertson. Um, initial period at the club was spent learning how to do what Klopp required them to do from a defensive perspective to to be trusted to, to play in the team. Van Dijk, okay, straight in, no transition, um, but centre-back's a different uh, complexity from that perspective. And, and Alisson straight in, no transition. But again, goalkeeper's a different uh, complexity. So the point is, Werner shouldn't really expect to go straight in the team and play all the time anyway, even in a circumstance in which uh, Salah or Mane was leaving. Um, it will be difficult for him to transition and, and fit in, although he's kind of pre-adapted for it in the way that he, he plays for Leipzig. And, and you're right, um, the, the, the necessity to have backup for Mane and Salah is very important and Liverpool have been relatively fortunate in having those players um, available almost all of the time during these uh, last two seasons. And um, it only takes one bad contact injury um, uh, and a, a muscular or a, a serious tendon injury for you to be missing one of your key players for several months um, and then having someone like Werner ready to fit into the system should Manny or, or Salah be injured would obviously be a, a huge boon to Liverpool in their defence of, uh, of that first Premier League title whenever um, the new Premier League season starts. Well, from uh, Liverpool to Leipzig, we will fly to Turin. Um, obviously, the uh, Transfer Window podcasts, our environmental sense of responsibility means we won't be flying our private plane. Um, we'll just talk about it instead, Duncan. And uh, you've got some news on Juventus with regards to departures. Again, let's not make any airline references here. And possibly a move for a player in the Premier League and indeed in the black country of Wolverhampton. Yeah, Juventus want to upgrade at centre-forward. They want to remove Gonzalo Higuain from the wage bill. Um, he has been underperforming for them for some time. He's the third highest paid player um, there, a net salary of uh, 7.5 million euros a season, uh, behind only Cristiano Ronaldo and Matthias de Ligt 
on their pay scale. Um, he has a year's contract left and they're hoping they can shift him off the wage bill. Um, obviously prepared to take a, uh, uh, a free transfer um, or a swap deal, anything to, to move Iguain out. They want to improve an attack and they've been looking at a number of options around the European game for that position. And one of the, the, the strong options is Raul Jimenez, um, who has done an exceptional job for Wolves in his two seasons in the Premier League. As we've said in the podcast um, for some time now, he, I think, has reached a level where, and at an age where it would be appropriate for him to move to a bigger club and Wolves will not, I'm told, stand in his way if they get an offer which meets um, their valuation of the player. Uh, Jimenez is interested in that move. It's not by any means the only club that have been uh, uh, checking on Jimenez's availability and considering him as a signing for the next season. Again, as we told you in the podcast some time ago, Manchester United have been very impressed with the way he's played and he is one of the options they've been looking at as a centre forward to add into their squad and to take um, pressure off Anthony Martial uh, for next season to give them give them two options and give them a player who, you'd have to say, is a much better aerial prospect Um uh, and a stronger, more physical presence than Martial, so to give them tactical options there. Um, nothing in terms of offers from either club at present. Um, and of course, they're dealing with Wolves who um, have very substantial financial backing behind them. And they've designed their project in a way that they bring players in for good prices, they give them the platform to perform. Um, they they go higher and higher in the Premier League, and they have a if restart happens, they have a realistic possibility of qualifying for the Champions League through their the Premier League place this season. Um, and then they they move those players on for for big profits and uh, and reinvest elsewhere using their scouting skills to pick up um, the kind of talents they've brought in so far and, and developed. And obviously the, the other individual that um, has been a major target for Premier League and top European clubs this summer is Adama Traore, um, wanted by Manchester City, valued before the pandemic at 150 million euros by Wolves. Um, suggestions were that City were, were prepared to pay 80 million for him at the time. That all is on hold um, as far as the Traoris and, and Wolves are concerned until we find out budgets and, and find out whether even a club like Manchester City will be prepared to spend that much on a, a serious talent. But um, you know, it would be a record fee for them, 80 million euros. But uh, Wolves are, are, are waiting, I think, to see whether they're, they can they can sell their top players at good prices this summer, whether they hold them for an additional season because the offers don't come in. Very interesting that, um, as you said, Duncan, or you referred to the model, financial model of Wolves is to sell players that are um, do have high market value because they're confident that they can replace them uh, with players uh, coming in. However, it would be a shock to... Um, Wanderers fans um, with regards to the, the kind of breakup, if you like, of what has been uh, 
a very successful, but not just that, a really entertaining and footballing side who um, have kind of, you know, not just surprised, but but taken the Premier League uh, in their stride. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also Europa League, um, they, they have... Uh, had to go in at the early stages. They played a lot of games before any of the other Premier League clubs this season. They have an extremely tight squad. Um, not many options for uh, Nuno Espirito Santo to use, yet he's managed to uh, retain amazing player availability. The lack of injuries in that squad while playing high-level quality football, tactically intelligent football, and giving most sides very serious problems. Um, in fact, they, they tend to perform better against the, the stronger sides because of their uh, because of the way they're set up to play. Uh, has been uh, has been incredibly impressive, and um, you have to say that from Will's perspective, um, there must be a real sense that they. they Perhaps the most important individual to retain there is Nuno, um, in that what he's managed to achieve with what are good resources, intelligent scouting, good buying, but such a, a shallow squad um, is, you know, it, stand, it stands comparison with all the other managers in the Premier League, uh, I think, um, in terms of resource to output. And the speed in which they adapted to the Premier League and the speed at which they've they've put themselves in um, sight of a Champions League place with one of the, the hardest playing schedules of the Premier League sides and pushed deep into the Europa League. Um, it's it's high quality management. From the prospective transfer market to now project restart which of course was given the green light to uh, begin non-contact training in small groups by the Premier League on Monday of this week uh, with government approval as well uh, in terms of looking to get games back on at least without fans but on live television by the middle of next month. We have obtained information here at the Transfer Window podcast that uh, an unusual development with regards to how clubs and, of course, their staff are dealing with this um, is that um, club owners um, desperate to uh, get football back and also, of course, with the economic factors that and benefits that that brings have been, let's just say, um, making sure their players um know the importance of returning to the field. Uh, we have heard from sources that it's even been the case that club owners have called agents of players who don't even belong to that particular club or have in that play, club's playing squad um, who have spoken out against um, the possibility of a restart on the grounds of health and safety. Uh, to say um, that basically they should speak to their client and say uh, you have to understand the importance uh, to all of us of getting restarted. We also understand that some clubs have conveyed that same sentiment 
to their employees, i.e. players and staff, with regards to, again, speaking publicly about their concerns regarding um, a restart and the dangers to players themselves. Duncan, we've discussed this um, a few times over the last four or five weeks. We had Brighton striker Glenn Murray on the pod uh, three weeks ago, expressing his concerns with regards to a return to training um, too early. And Troy Deeney has since been extremely vocal in his concerns with regards to um, his son, who has had respiratory problems and is only five months old, and himself. And of course, the fact that uh, BAME people contract and potentially die of the virus. Um, and indeed, Dini has refused to return to training this week because of that. And has received criticism, Duncan, which you've seen a lot of um, on social media. And I, I think it's, I don't really understand why people don't see it from his point of view, especially um, with regards to what is a very simple question of the health of himself and his family. Yeah, I, I think I think it's very important to note here that both Glenn Murray and Troy Deeney have been very much at the front line of players' representation when it comes to meetings with the Premier League um, and meetings with me- Premier League medical staff in which they've they've talked through the procedures for a return to training and um, the, what they intend the procedures to be for a return to playing. So, so Dini and Glenn Murray have been able to question these strategies that are being proposed to them and, uh, and actually have been expected to do so as representatives of their fellow players at their club and f- to feedback information to those players. So th- they've had the opportunity, which I think actually very few people in football have had, to directly interrogate the Premier League authorities uh, in to, detail. Um, Dun- sorry, Duncan, to interrupt, but two representatives of each club were on that call last Wednesday, and that was the captain plus one member of the players' leadership groups. So you had um, effectively uh, 40 people, players that is, directly involved with uh, the clubs and the restart, talking to Premier League officials, medics, et cetera, et cetera. So you're right. It's a very small focus group. Yeah, and, and they, they've had the ability to, as I say, interrogate these people in detail as to as to the plans. And let's face it, they are directly exposed to the efficacy of the plans that have been devised to get them back to play football. The ones taking the greatest risk here are the footballers and then... By definition, if they're going to remain with their families um, during the, so we're looking at six weeks to play the remaining fixtures and then perhaps four weeks or more uh, of training ahead of playing those fixtures. So if they're going to stay with their family for those 10 weeks, then they are passing that exposure on to their family. And um, as Troy Deeney pointed out, um, he... And all the other Premier League players, the way that the system is set up at the moment, are expected to arrive at the training ground in their own kit. They're not allowed to shower at the training ground. They're, in fact, not allowed to do very much at the training ground other than train. Not allowed to eat at the training ground. They're expected to return home 
in the kit that has been exposed to whatever um, coronavirus risk there is at the training ground, primarily from their fellow players and staff, uh, and take it into their house and wash the kit themselves. So you know they that is part of the procedure that's been set up for them. Troy Deeney has pointed out that he's asked questions to the medics um, as to the safety of these um, procedures that they're being asked to follow. And uh, and they've been unable to give him satisfactory answers. Um, as you say, he, he said one of the simple questions he put to the Premier League um, officials was for black, Asian and mixed ethnicities that are four times more likely to get the illness. We're twice as likely to have long lasting illnesses. Is there anything extra, any additional screening, heart stuff to see if people have got problems? No, he says was the answer. Um, and, it's, and, and he says he feels that that should be addressed. And it's very hard to, to disagree with him on that. He said that there were no specific targets for moving um, from the initial phase of training, which is going to be players in groups of five social distancing to um, eventual 11 v 11 uh, training amongst the team. Uh, and uh, I think most pertinently he sums up and he says, um, I, I can't get a haircut until mid-July, but I can go and get in a box with 19 people and jump for a header. And no one could answer the questions. So it's not because they didn't want to, just because they don't know the information. So I said to them, if you don't know the information, why should I put myself at risk? So, so what he's saying there is he has gone into a meeting with the people who have designed the protocols, which are supposed to keep Premier League footballers, Premier League staff and their family um, safe from COVID exposure during a resumption of Premier League football. And those staff have not been able to answer his questions to his satisfaction. And I, I, I do not understand how people can then go and criticise the players and say to them um, they don't have the right to uh, object to training and object to playing football in those conditions. Um, I think legally it would be very hard for the Premier League, for their clubs to force the players to play. We'll see what happens with Watford. Uh, Dini didn't turn up for training. I'm told another senior Watford player did not turn up um, for the first day back. I'm also told that there, um, there are you know, several individuals within the club who are unimpressed by the Premier League procedures and the risk involved. And, and I'm told that uh, the manager, Nigel Pearson, is amongst those who has reservations about the, the system that's been set up for the return to football. And part of the reason, it seems, for those reservations is that he lives with his um, elderly father. So he's um, uh, understandably concerned that if he's, as a manager, as a coach, is being exposed to the virus during training and the playing of matches that he could bring it back to his father who is in a, a, a risk group um, for severe illness from COVID. You go through the measures that the Premier League have put in place and they are placing a lot of emphasis on the testing of individuals. And, and I hear people saying um, the Premier League players and staff are going to be tested twice a week 
um, it's the safest working environment possible. You, people saying it's the, the safest place in England to work will be at a Premier League football club. If you look at these tests, the company that provides the test themselves are claiming that approximately, they have approximately 98.8% accuracy in the test. So they're, they're not saying they're 100% effective. Now, 98.8% accuracy means that in a batch of 800 tests, which is what each um, Premier League club uh, will produce. So each club is allowed 40 tests and they nominate individuals to have the test. So note that not all the members of staff are being tested each time. It's the 40 individuals that, that the club feel have to be tested. Um, so you get 40 times 20, that's 800 tests. Out of 800 tests on a 98.8% accuracy, you're going to get 10 incorrect results from each batch of tests. On top of that, it takes up to 48 hours to get the results of that test. So someone who tests positive will have been involved in training um, for up to two days while being positive for the disease and therefore could have exposed his teammates um, and in, in a worst case scenario, uh, could be involved in a match before a test result uh, comes through to show they're positive. Now, what's the response of the Premier League if a player tests positive of the protocol? It's that that individual self-isolates for just seven days. It's not the case that they say, okay, we've got a positive in that squad, in, that, in the staff, in the players of a club. Therefore, we... Um, we quarantine everyone and test them all until it's clear that everyone is clear of the disease. They're just self-isolating for seven days. So this is not perfect. <laughs> there is no way with that procedure that you can guarantee that, um, that you are not playing against or training with individuals who are positive for the disease and that you can guarantee that an, a player going in for training is not and, and playing matches is not going to be exposed um, to COVID and therefore possibly bring that back to his family. So uh, it is fundamentally not a guarantee of safety um, to play football in this fashion. And that's before you go into all the other elements that are being added into um the, the way in which they will train and prepare themselves for matches, removing elements that are now considered fundamental to, to them performing on the field and, and avoiding injury. So things like cryotherapy, um, limiting massages, limiting uh, physical treatment uh, post-training and post-matches, um, the inability to uh, to to eat immediately after training. Um, so generally it's considered the best time to refuel is immediately after training these days. You're, you're taking that away, um, forcing players to travel home uh, before they can eat. And doing this after a, a long period of playing no football at all, huge number of players are really concerned that they're going to suffer injury um, when they return to football. Uh, and concerned that they might suffer career-threatening injuries, um, that it's going to be far more dangerous th to, for them to play football. Just the basics of playing football, forget about um, the, the risk of contracting COVID-19, but it's going to be more dangerous to play from, 
play football for them than it's ever been before. And, and therefore, they're taking additional risks um, over their future career, potentially, in a, in a period in which their, um, the financial outlook of the game is as dark as it's been for um, decades, uh, in order to try and force this restart to happen. And speaking of the financial aspect, Duncan, that's clearly um, one of the greatest issues in terms of severity that football is facing. Um, just uh, this morning, I was told by a very good source that um, he believes that 14 championship clubs are effectively up for sale, but with no prospective buyers. Um, and also, um, speaking to people who are trying uh, to resolve the um, impact of COVID-19 on football finances with regards to football's expenditure. One of the uh, avenues that they are exploring is obviously the downgrading of player contracts because players are um, realistically the greatest assets of every football club, but they're also the biggest source of cash in terms of spent uh, on salaries. There is a big debate with regards to how player contracts can be scaled down um, and simply saying you'll take a wage cut doesn't really um, sound too good to either the players or their agents, etc., etc. Um, they've already done this in terms of wage uh, deferrals and cuts in the interim period, but clearly... Football's at a point where it needs to reassess its own finances and be more realistic with regards to its expenditure in the future. And one of the um, things that I've been told is being proposed and will be put before the PFA as well is that a scaled-down contract for football players across all divisions um, will mean a pay cut over the period of the contract remaining. Um, and interestingly, that in, in place of taking uh, money off a player's weekly wage, a club will be, um, or a player indeed, will be invited to um, consider the possibility of reducing the term of his contract by a year. So instead of taking a hit of 25% on um, his weekly wage, if he's on a three-year deal, he can reduce that to two. He pays the wage the same, but will be out of contract one year earlier. Um, elite players, the possibility is that those who don't have a release clause, and there are very few in England specifically who have um, a release clause in their contracts, currently a release clause could be inserted uh, in exchange for the player taking a wage cut. Duncan, this seems to me to be a sensible um, proposal, but do you think it's going to work? Because we know historically that players and agents are very protective of what their earnings are. And indeed, of course, the agents themselves depend on commission based on a player's salary over the course of the contract. I think it's very difficult to have any blanket system, um, particularly across a league. Uh, we, we have seen clubs achieve 
um, blanket pay cuts or deferrals. Um, Juventus, uh, a very notable example of that. Barcelona have achieved it, although Barcelona have done it with the benefit of um, of uh, laws in, in Spain, which allow companies scope to um, to cut salaries as long as they can justify the need to cut those salaries in order to uh, remain solvent. So they have a, a much more powerful legal weapon behind them. But uh, to, to, to suggest that you will bring in a system in which every Premier League player has to take a substantial pay cut um, and that you can get them all to accept that, particularly with the state that the, the, uh, the players' union is in, at present, I, I find um, hard to believe that, that that will be effective. We've seen the attempts of multiple Premier League clubs to furlough staff um, and to uh, certain clubs to introduce wage cuts and deferrals and, and the resistance that there's been amongst clubs and the, the scepticism from players that, that it's necessary for them to take the hit rather than the owners of the clubs to take the hit caused by coronavirus. Obviously, the longer the interruption to football, um, the larger the amount of money that is lost in terms of broadcast revenue and match day revenue, the more clubs will come under severe financial pressure. And there, I'm told at least two clubs in the Premier League um, who are getting uh, very close to the limit in terms of liquidity to pay players and play and pay um, debts they've taken on um, already and that kind of scenario will obviously um, increase if we do not get back to playing games and and there you have um, a situation where the players are faced with their, their club um, potentially going out of business then they have to make an analysis of whether they want they want to try and help the club stay in business by taking pay cuts or whether it's better for them to let that happen and move elsewhere. So the judgment, I think, always fundamentally will come down to the quality of the player and what he considers the market to be and whether um, he thinks that he's overpaid at present and cannot achieve the same wage at another club. In that circumstance, then it would make sense to guarantee your employment at a place where you are happy to work um, for um, a lesser rate of money. But if you're, um, for example, if you're Jaden Sancho, we're going outside the Premier League now, if you're Jaden Sancho and Borussia Dortmund come to you and say, well, um, everyone at the club is going to have to take a 45% pay cut or they're going to have to reduce their contract in length um, uh, or else. And if I'm Jaden Sancho's representative, I say, okay, well, I'll, I'll see you uh, in court. Thank you. You've broken the terms of my contract. I, I shall be moving elsewhere if you're not prepared to continue paying me on the rate I'm at at the moment. And there, you know, there's player after player after player in that situation who remain valuable properties, who will re remain targets for the clubs who go through this crisis and come out of this crisis with the better balance sheet. With, the, with a stronger financial position. We've seen Ole Gunnar Solskjaer talking on record early in this process about taking advantage of other clubs, um, something he was criticised for. Wasn't the um, 
the most delicate ways of phrasing things, but you can be sure that that, that, that is the way the more powerful clubs in football, the ones with the better balance sheets, uh, the ones who feel they have some wiggle room are looking at this. They see the opportunity to take advantage of others. They're set up to take advantage of others. It's the nature of the game. It's a competitive process. Um, nothing changes there. So I, I think while the idea of, of blanket pay cuts or, or contract uh, reductions sounds nice in principle, actually implementing it's very difficult. And, and you see this with one of the, the more imminent problems the Premier League is facing, which is how do you retain the players in squads whose contracts are due to expire on June 30th? The provisional return date, and even Richard Masters is saying he, he can't guarantee that they will get back on, on that uh, date is the 12th June. So all of these players who go out of contract on the 30th of June are going to go out of contract during the period of the proposed competition. Conclusion, the Premier League solution has been to say, we will give you um, until June 23rd to renew the contracts of those players until the end of the season, whenever that end of the season is. So you, you have permission to extend their contracts in the short term. Uh, until we complete the Premier League season. But the permission means nothing other than the Premier League will allow it to happen. The players have to sign and they have to agree to sign. And I can tell you there are a number of players who are very sceptical of signing uh, short-term contracts to train and play in a dangerous environment, dangerous from from coronavirus perspective, but also from what I was talking about earlier, the lack of proper preparation, coming back after months without playing football, not having cryotherapy, not having massages after match, going into intense games where the futures of, of clubs, uh, certain clubs will be on the line. They see that as being a serious risk of a serious injury at a time when they are about to go out of contract. All their current club is offering them is a, a, you know, a couple of month extension at the most. Um, what happens if you do your ACL as a, you know, as a 23-year-old um, Premier League player who has suitors outside um, your current club who are prepared to give you the biggest contract of your life, um, one that will sort out your family, um, and you take the risk of of playing for your current team for a couple of months and being injured and having that long-term contract removed. That, that's a very tough decision for a player to make, regardless of their affection for the club or, or wanting to help out their current club. Um, there are, I think, going to be players who will say, no, sorry, I'm not going to, to sign that extension. Therefore, the, the squad sheets of, um, of Premier League clubs, I think, if restart happens, are going to end up being different to the squad sheets which, which, with which they went into the season and came through the January window. And once again, you have an integrity of competition issue, which of course you have with players like Troy Deeney saying, I'm not going to train and presumably not going to play. You know, Once you get a significant number of top players at clubs, and Deeney is very important at Watford, saying, I'm not playing under these conditions, um, what fairness do you have to the resolution of the season in in the proposed manner that the, the Premier League are putting forward? 
that Duncan will be the cliff edge, I suspect, um, with regards to the current situation um, if we get to that. And let's hope it's not the case, but if we do get to the point where um, there's a day before a game is meant to be played and players decide they don't want to play because they feel they're being put at risk, um, that's where I think we will find our benchmark with regards to um, whether or not it's safe um, to return to the field of play. Andy, and in that context, it has to be said that the Premier League's procedure for announcing the positive results of coronavirus tests is one that would provoke concerns amongst players in that they are announcing the number of positive tests across clubs rather than saying which clubs have got those positive tests. And it, you know, they, they say the Premier League is providing this aggregated information for the purposes of competition, integrity and transparency. But you wonder why they're not saying which clubs have provided the test. Is it because they're concerned that opponents will see that a club has had a rash of positive tests ahead of a game and the opponents will say, I, I don't want to play against them. I, I know well, from our Duncan, testing knowing, that our knowing clubs players okay. as you and I do, that's exactly the, the judgment they'll make. They will say, unless you, rev- full disclosure, unless you tell us which club has the you know, 10, 12, 14 positive tests, then we're not going to play because you've not given us all the information. Yeah, and, and remember, as I, I explained earlier, those positive tests, if, if, if say, Liverpool um, have three positive tests the day before they're due to play Aston Villa, um, and Aston Villa know that it's Liverpool who have the positive tests, because it takes up to 48 hours to get those results, the Aston Villa players cannot be sure that the three positive tests hadn't spread the disease amongst other players and staff members at Liverpool. So even if those three, say they're all players, are now self-isolating for seven days as the Premier League requires them to do and are taken out of the match, Aston Villa players would not be able to be guaranteed that they are playing against players who are negative for COVID-19 on the way the the Premier League protocol is set up at the moment because they do not stop the the team that's had the positive test from training and from playing and they don't know what happened in the 48 hours between the test being given and the positive test result coming back. there are just so many problems with the protocol. It does not surprise me that when someone like Troy Deeney sits down and talks to the people who've designed that protocol and asks questions, he comes back saying, you can't answer my questions, so I'm not prepared to take that risk. I am not prepared to train. Well, you'll also not be surprised, I'm sure, um, people of the Transfer Window podcast that our hero and villain section of today's pod is predominantly uh, based on the response of players to COVID-19. I'm going to ask Duncan for his villain uh, because uh, he looks uh, like a villain 
obviously. Anyway, you've seen his his profile picture. <laughs> you think he, he looks a bit like? Uh, well, you could make your own minds up and send us your uh, answers on social <laughs> media. Um, and I'm going to give us our hero. Um, I think I think the villain has to be uh, Joey Barton, who um, stepped into this argument uh, by uh, responding to to Glenn Murray, um, our uh, a regular contributor to the Transfer Podcast, after he'd given that um, interview with Jamie Carragher that we mentioned on the last podcast, saying, uh, talking through some of the reservations he had about returning to uh, training and returning to to playing and and the attempts to complete the league. And Joey Barton's response was to say, if the government allow games, you're getting paid to play football, get on with it. Um, Which you have to say, Joey Barton, how on earth can you place your trust in a government, particularly this government, if it tells you to do something, that it's safe and therefore you should go forward with it? I think we've seen more than enough evidence. You can count in thousands, tens of thousands, the results of the efficacy of this government when it comes to tackling coronavirus. You can compare it with um, every other country in Europe. They are not the people that if they tell me to do something that is clearly a risky activity, that I would take that as gospel and uh, and just get on with it, as Joey Barton suggests to Glenn Murray, Raheem Sterling, Troy Deeney and others. Uh, my hero would be obviously Troy Deeney, a man of his family, a man of the people who has spoken openly and honestly and given his opinion on exactly what it is uh, in terms of being put in this situation regarding making a choice about putting his family at risk or playing a game of football. Uh, Troy Deeney, we commend you um, because you have spoken sense and you stuck up for all of those players out there who have grave reservations about what they're being asked to do. We, of course, are in the lucky position of uh, not being put at risk. Duncan and I, you'll be glad to know our social distancing. So I'm pretty sure we're okay with that. Um, and we will be back later this week with another Transfer Window podcast. As for today, please uh, engage with us on everything and anything you've heard uh, uh, with regards to stories and information. Um, We are on social media channels at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. If you like what you've heard, and we know that you do, so please log on to uh, iTunes. Give us a five-star review. Helps us expand the community, expand the debate, and of course, benefits all of us. We will be back later this week with another Transfer Window podcast, bringing, of course, you the news before it becomes news, because, hey, that's what we do. And until then, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.